0: Hi, this is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest Inside Personal Growth podcast, episode number 873 with author Quint Studer about his new book entitled, The Calling, Why Healthcare is So Special. This podcast number 873 is brought to you by Scott Miller, author of a new book entitled Marketing Mess to Brand Success, 30 Challenges to Transform Your Organization's Brand. Marketing Masterbrand Success focuses on the topic of being transparent and learning we gain from the messes and failures. Listen to this interview with Scott as we talk about the marketing strategies and deliberately crafting your own brand and message. If you want to learn more about Scott Miller, his monthly coaching programs, and his book, please visit his website at Scott. Jeffreymiller.com. That is WW Scott S-C-O-T-T, J E F F R E Y, M-I-L-L-E-R.com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with author Quint Studer about his new book entitled The Calling, Why Healthcare is So Special. Enjoy listening.
1: Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boys and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have a friend that I've known now for some time, Quint Studer, uh, the gentleman who developed the Studer Group. We're going to be talking about his new book that he has out, uh, and it is called The Calling, um, Why Healthcare is So Special. Uh, Quint, good day to you from Wisconsin. That's not your normal place, but you're opening up a ballpark there? Or what is that? Correct. Yeah, in
2: Beloit, Wisconsin, we got a brand new ballpark for the Beloit team here, the High A team that my wife and I own, and we're very excited. It's going to break downtown, beautiful Beloit, right on the Rock River, so we're very excited.
1: Well, good for you guys, and I hope that it has. They have a great season. You know, uh, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. quent has spent nearly four decades in healthcare. He worked with multiple healthcare systems. The last stop being the president of Baptist Health in Pensacola which is where Quint resides. Um, In 2000, he founded the Studer Group, a healthcare and education coaching company. Uh, The company was sold in 2015 and Quint left in 2016. He went and founded uh, the Studer Community Institute, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve the quality of life for people. He's authored many books. Uh, This just happens to be his most recent one called The Calling, which we're going to be talking about. Uh, with several listed in the bestseller list, um, he serves on several healthcare boards and is a frequent speaker, a workshop facilitator, and mentor to individuals and organizations. The tools and techniques that Quint has created over the years are now staples in the healthcare systems throughout the world. Uh, for all of you, we'll put a link to the book and his new website called The Gratitude Group, thegratitudegroup.com is where you'll go there. You can learn more about Quint and you certainly can order the book online there as well. As a matter of fact, that's the only place you'll be able to get this book for a while. It is not at Amazon. So I want to repeat for my listeners. It is not at Amazon. You're going to go to the to order your book. So Quint uh, good day to you. You know, I told the listeners a little bit about you and obviously um, and uh, helping people with their calling is really your mission and has been for some time. You've dedicated much of your career working with healthcare workers, which we know is a calling, and we know that you found it super fulfilling. You state that one of the goals of the book is to help readers who have a full, to have a full emotional bank account, uh, to keep it full, and to help those who don't have a full bank account fill it back up. Why is it so important to the emotional and mental well being of healthcare workers to have a full bank account, as you refer to it?
2: Well, you know, years ago, I heard Stephen Covey talk about the seven essential habits of highly affected people. And that's the first place I heard about the emotional bank account. And it just made sense to me that we have deposits and we have withdrawals. And, you know, every business has both. Healthcare is a little bit different, and some of our withdrawals, we have no control over and such as different reimbursement even before the pandemic. So what we've learned is that if people don't replenish their own emotional bank account, particularly leaders, it's hard for them to replenish others or create their right culture. So as I thought about healthcare, you know, it's a pretty interesting thing. If you look at want to see a happy nurse, go to pinning ceremony. That's when they become a nurse, they get pinned. They've never been, they have a full emotional bank account. You want to see a happy doctor? Watch when they get their white lab coat. If you've looked at Instagram in in the month of July, you'll see doctors actually posting pictures of themselves, jumping up and down excited because they just finished their first shift of their residency. A month from now, you will not see these postings on Instagram of excitement. Because what happens is once people get into healthcare, there seems to be a lot more withdrawals than deposits. Sometimes there's withdrawals we can't control. I was in my Zell hospital two weeks ago, a two-year-old Brown was taken to the ED. And that just sucks all emotion out of a hospital to have that. Sometimes people get a boss that sucks the life out of them. Sometimes there's a coworker. Sometimes it's the environment. So my book was really about when people enter healthcare. There's a DNA here that they, they come on to health because um, people really, in my mind, um, have a DNA, a calling, as I call it. You know, you talk to a nurse or a doctor, they want to be in it from the very beginning. Non-healthcare people do get the calling. So my research was, how come people that feel so strongly when they enter a profession then make the decision to sometimes not stay in that profession, even though it was in their calling?
1: yeah you know you you hit on a really important point, and I think not even just for healthcare workers. It's really about people finding their passions and turning it into a purpose, even if it's not in the healthcare field. Um, and I, I agree with you on that emotional bank account. It literally gets drained. You see that happen to entrepreneurs. They've got this vision, and they have to battle the elements to get it to where they want to go. And some don't manage their energy very well. I had Dr. Jim Lohr on here just recently. And, you know, uh, managing to get the full engagement is really an interesting thing. And, Quint, you share your personal experience and how you came to your own calling in the healthcare field. I think our listeners would be interested in learning about that because your journey is not, wasn't a normal one. It's not one that... uh, you know, you didn't get a doctorate degree. <laughs> you, you aren't a doctor. You aren't a nurse. Uh, but you're helping in this field so immensely. Tell the listeners a little bit about that story.
2: Sure. Um, I grew up with a speech impediment and a hearing impairment. And school is always difficult for me. And one of the things I did in high school is the one of the teachers who taught children with special needs let me come in and be a teacher assistant. So when I went to college... They asked me what I wanted to major in. And the thing that I always felt better place was when I was working with children with special needs. So I became a teacher of children with special needs for 10 years. Unfortunately or fortunately, I also have this little disease called alcoholism. When I was 31 years old, um, I woke up December 24th of 1982. And if you would have asked me December 23rd of 1982, how you doing? I would have said, great. December 24th of 1982, I was suicidal. I blew in through a family, um financially in trouble, barely hanging on to a job, and I had what people call a moment of clarity. And I sought help. And that's actually what got me into the healthcare field.
1: Um, that's Norm Adams. You couldn't yeah. have done it without Norm Adams. He was your sponsor. I, yep. Yeah.
2: So, yeah So I I basically got into health care by working into a treatment center. We Mm -hmm. called on hospitals with employees who were going back to work. One day, a hospital in Janesville said, why don't you come here and work? So I went to Janesville, and then I became senior vice president of that hospital. And then I went to Chicago, where I became chief operating officer of Holy Cross. And then I became president of Baptist in Pensacola, Florida. Along the way, I, I learned a lot of the skills sort of combining recovery with teaching special needs children about you would diagnose, you treat, you come up with a plan and had a lot of success, started my own company. So it's always been important to me. And I think it's really come full circle now, because probably one of the things I'm focusing on the most now, particularly with healthcare workers, is the ability to seek help, get help, not think mental health is a stigma. And um, and the calling sort of touches it based on that too, that we can yeah. answer our calling. And how do we become? I think the word resiliency is overused in healthcare. People misinterpret it as a keep going no matter what. So that's how I got in. In fact, sometimes Greg, as we we wrap up this question, I do a lot of speaking at colleges, and they'll say they see me as a successful healthcare person. Probably wrote the book that's the most sold book ever in healthcare harboring excellence. They want to know about my career because they're all going MHA and MBA. And I said, well, I'm not sure my path was the exact path that people want to follow, but it worked for me.
1: Well, we all have a journey to take to get and climb the mountain. And there's always different routes to get there, as you know. And not everybody takes the same route. And I just want to acknowledge you for, you know, having woken up on December 24th and having that epiphany uh, that you still wanted to be here, uh, because without you would be pretty tough. I'm, I'm happy to know you personally as a friend and also uh, to know your works. Now, you've authored many books focused on healthcare administration. I think, what's the number? 20 plus? Is that right?
2: No, I think I've got I think we've got about 11 books, but 11. they've all done, they've all done pretty well in healthcare. I wrote two books, non for health, three books, not for healthcare. One was results at last. The other one was busy leader handbook. Then I wrote a book for communities called building a vibrant community. So, um, but this calling was to me coming all the way back home to hardwiring excellence. You know, 19 years yeah. ago, I wrote hardwiring excellence and I think this calling is like hardwiring excellence, um, this phase.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, leadership's obviously an important element in a well-run healthcare organization. In your book, the Busy Leaders Handbook, uh, the first chapter is really titled "Strive to be Self-Aware and Coachable." Um, how do you help people become more self-aware and coachable so that they become better leaders uh, in the industry? I mean you're talking about mental health, and I think Carl Rogers used to say, you know if you ask yourself the questions, most of the time when you do your own self-diagnosis, you you have the answer. You know, but you have to trust to follow that. And I'm just curious because that's self-awareness. When you can ask a question, answer it, and follow that inner voice that tells you to do what you do, as long as you're discerning, that is. Um, how do you help people find that inner voice and listen to it and trust in it?
2: I think part of it is a safe environment, Greg. I think you're absolutely right. If you read the... Even the Harvard Business Review this week, I think, came out with a thing on feedback. And if you look at, they say the best feedback that you can provide someone is ask them what they think. Because you're absolutely right. Most people have a pretty good self-perception of how they're doing or or what they can do better. But they're a little afraid to say it, afraid to do it. Or many leaders don't give them the chance to say it. So they'll right. just start giving feedback. So I think one is to to be a good listener and ask somebody how they're doing. The second one is to really make sure you have um, good objective measurement tools in place. I was talking to Jim Packard, who was president of Regal out of Blake for years a little while ago, and he said he always thought he had great employee engagement. and Then they used an outside company and he found out it wasn't as great as he thought. And you know, which he appreciated because then he held up the mirror and needed to go do some work on it. So I think outside measurement is really, really important, or else we can sort of con our ourselves. The third point, which really works well, is to show people what right looks like. So give you an example. There was a healthcare system hospital in Texas. They videotaped the ER doctors. Again, according to HIPAA, you didn't see the patient, but they it showed him how they worked. And then they showed them, the doctors with the best outcomes, how they worked. And those doctors, just comparing their video to what right looks like, quickly made the move to what right looks like. So I think it's asking people where they're at, making sure that you create a safe environment, making sure that you, you put some measurement in place if that's helpful to them, and actually truly showing them what right looks like. Because The perception is, in my mind, most people want to do a good job.
1: I love the part about the video and comparing the two. And I, when I was getting my master's degree in spiritual psychology, they said, if you played a video and watched it back, would you like what you saw during the day? And I think that's a really important element because it's how you treat others. It's how you perform. It's the actions you take. It's all of those things that are significant to having an impact on the patient and everybody around you, all of your cohorts that work with you, the nurses. So you mentioned in your chapter in the calling that one of the barriers that healthcare people face is the scope and pace of change. I just did an interview with April Rennie on flux, the eight superpowers uh, to get you through thrive during constant change. And in healthcare field, we see it changing all the time. You also say that as well, denial, rationalization, and blame uh, are all barriers, all of these barriers in healthcare. Um, How can you help people work through that, fill their bank accounts, and become more resilient? Because the reality is, resiliency is the name of the game. I've done a lot of work with Mayo. That's what Mayo Clinic's working on. Uh, They're espousing it to everybody in in the wellness app. And I think it is,
2: it is a valuable tool. I, I think when you look at change, you know, I love the book, by The Road Less Traveled, by Scott Peck, where he says yes. life is difficult. And once we understand that, it's not as difficult. Okay. I, think, I think you've got to help people realize that some of these feelings are natural. Um, I had Gene Davila, who just took a chief nurse executive job in Toledo, call me before her first day of work. And she said, I'm really anxious. I said, well, isn't that good? That shows you're not comatose because anybody starting a new job who's not anxious would probably have some issues. So I think it's walking them through. I was on that curriculum convening of the Harvard Business School with Regina Hertzlinger. I think it's that certain parts of change are pretty common. And you have to realize when you're going through them, even though they're uncomfortable, it's not unusual. Peter Senji in his book, The Fifth Discipline, talks about that creative tension, which I'm a huge fan of. So I think it's helping people understand their feelings because we're comparing our insides to somebody else's outsides usually. That of course you're nervous, of course you're anxious. So it's not unusual, um, accept it, but don't get paralyzed by it. Number two is sometimes you have to say what are the one or two behavioral changes that are most vital? Because mm-hmm. most people can only implement one or two things at a time anyway and help people prioritize those things. Number three, I think it's always connecting back to purpose. You know, and, and I, I've dealt with this, Greg, in healthcare. You know, People can be overwhelmed like crazy, short-staffed, interim leadership, but if they know the behavior they're going to do helps the clinical outcome of the patient, they cannot not do it. So when we connect things to the right purpose, we'll do the behavior, um, even though sometimes we're too busy, but we aren't too busy because we cannot not do it. Probably the fourth thing is hitting this thing, resiliency. I think the definition of resiliency is a little overused in healthcare. And I know I talked about it a little bit. When I use the word resiliency today to physicians, and I've talked to a lot of them, they almost roll their eyes and say, oh my God,
1: how Another many times are we talking hear? About resiliency. <laughs> How
2: are you going to talk about resiliency? <laughs> and and i think the challenge with resiliency if people interpret it as just keep going no matter what they're not going to be resilient they're going to be wore out resiliency also having the ability to be self aware and take care of ourselves a lot better which sometimes even means seeking professional help with healthcare people are absolutely notoriously for not doing
1: yeah well i think it's partially because they feel that they're, that they're invincible to a certain degree, um, especially the doctors uh, that I've run into, uh, but the ones that are super compassionate and sensitive, no, uh, those gentlemen usually and women understand what's necessary. Now, you touched on a, a chapter about envy, which actually in many books I have not seen anybody talk about this, but you discuss how this erodes the culture of an organization He did tell a story about a CEO recognizing people in public. And in fact, that some of the fellow co-workers were not applauding those individuals being recognized. Um, I thought that story was quite interesting. Can you convey the story and how we must be careful about envy inside of an organization?
2: I I love that. I I saw it all along because I dealt with it. One of my stories in the book is I always wanted to be called I always wanted to win Teacher of the Year. And I would even campaign for it, have send people letters to it. I mean, I would do everything to be teacher of the year. And one year, I thought I had it won, and they announced John Evans won. And I immediately didn't like John Evans and looked at all the reasons that he shouldn't have won it and I should have. And then I got into recovery, and while I was in recovery, I just quit worrying about winning awards and. All of a sudden, I got a phone call one day, and the superintendent said, well, you became teacher of the year, and gosh darn it, but who didn't give me the award but last year's winner, John Nevins? He was, so, he was so gracious, I saw what he wanted. So in healthcare, Greg, when I went to an organization, even today, I asked to give me their success story, your bright mm-hmm. spots. Mm-hmm. You know, where are their best practices? And they'll give me some people, and I will name them, and, and then I'll ask people to clap, and sometimes... Not only did people not clap, they'd even come up to me at break and tell me why it was easy for that person. So I was in a hospital. Um, CEO got up and just 900 liters. He just basically went through some part departments that were having great results. He asked everyone to clap, and I right. noticed about 80 to 90 percent of the people clapped, and maybe 10 to 20 percent didn't clap. So I know him very well. I've worked with this organization. Have a lot of emotional bank account. I came up and said, you know, maybe it's just me, but I noticed when the CEO asked you to clap, you you didn't clap. Now, I'm curious, because if we can't even comply with clapping when the CEO asks us to do clapping, what else are you being asked to do that you're not doing? So let's just walk through clapping. I said, it could be you don't know how to clap. So it could be now if you're physically unable to clap, I get it. But let's just say everyone in here is. But if you're not, I understand. Um, so let's walk through how clapping looks. So I held my hands out. I showed him how to bring the arms together. I had everyone clap. I said, OK, so now we have the skill to clap. I said, it could have been a timing issue. Maybe by the time you got ready to clap, he was moving on. So we're going to time this clap. So I'm going to ask you to clap at a certain time. I'll count down and then we'll all clap. It could be you think you're clapping, but your hands aren't coming together. So I'm going to ask everyone around the table to do a little peer help, look around and make sure everyone's clapping. And if they're not, encourage them to clap because, you know, peer peer pressure, peer support is very, very important. And we're going to continue to clap till everybody's clapping. So I did this whole exercise until everybody's clapping. And the point I was trying to make is, why aren't you clapping? And it's not because you don't know how, because sometimes we move into this envy factor that I think it's easier, it's easier for them to clap or it's, it's easier, excuse me, it's easier for them to get good results. It's easier for them to, they're in the right department at the right time. Once we come up with excuses that why we can't do it, we become a victim. And once we become a victim, we give up the control of our destiny to somebody else.
1: That's a good point. And it, it, I loved the story. And I think most CEOs or people in upper management don't think about the impact in the, um, as a matter of fact, it probably never crosses their mind. So this was a really good chapter. I enjoyed it. You know, another thing is perfectionism. And obviously perfectionism is a big part of healthcare field. Uh, you mentioned it just earlier. Uh, a two-year-old came in and a loss of a life like that is difficult for them to take uh, because they believed their job is to save uh, everybody. You mentioned that perfectionism can get in the way of progress, and that there are times when better is not only acceptable but an expected part of the journey to best. And I think that's the most important part here: is better gets to best. Can you comment on how perfectionism? can get in the way of becoming best.
2: Sure. I think in healthcare, it's real easy because so many times we have to be perfect with medication, with surgeries, with accounting, with documentation, electronic health records. So there's certain things you want to be perfect, but then that gets into the fact and you don't even realize it sort of subconsciously not do some things because it isn't perfect. So for example, um, peer interviewing. Let's say we knew right away that when we went to peer interviewing, that selection process would get better, that the coworkers would spot some things they wouldn't. Now, we could wait until every single person has been trained to be the perfect at peer interviewing. They all have their questions right, but then we would never get to it. So mm-hmm. sometimes you just get into it because it's going to take a while. You, you got to get into traffic and that sort of makes you better. And then as mm-hmm. you get as you start doing it you can start evolving one of my favorite stories is in Kansas you know most hospitals today have very fancy systems where there's buzzers that go off if a patient gets out of bed there's all sorts of very expensive beds so to prevent falls but this hospital at the time just couldn't afford those expensive beds so what they did is they put yellow blankets on every patient that was a fall that could fall you know risk of fall They'll explain why you have the yellow blanket. They told the family why they have the yellow blanket. And when people could walk by the room, if they saw the yellow blanket, they would go into that room more often to make sure the person's bathroom needs and that were taken care of. Now, a yellow blanket's not near perfect when you look at what perfect could be. But the yellow blanket at least got them better than where they were and reduced falls. In fact, that became very popular in Australia. When people were looking at fall prevention. So that's a little hospital in Kansas that just came up with something better. But it certainly wasn't best. But it did make it did prevent falls. And that's the goal.
1: Yeah, I, I always tell my clients, do what you can with what you've got. Uh, a lot of times, you know, you, you don't have the resources. Like you said, the civil hospital didn't have money to buy all new beds and roll them in and all the electronics and everything. But the yellow blankets worked, and it probably prevented a lot of people from having those falls. So, I think it's I think it's great. It's ingenious. Um, you know, I obviously live close to the border here, and I see the Hispanic people, and I see how ingenious they are at fixing things. Right? They're just literally it doesn't matter. They'll put stuff together with rubber bands and and whatever, and they'll get it to work. Right? And um, I love that ingenuity. Now, your chapter on reluctance to seek help we were just talking about this because this healthcare care field is you're invincible i can do it and i'll get by myself and you know, let's face it on uh, december 24th you woke up and you needed help uh and that's when norm adams came into your life um who was your sponsor during the time uh with alcohol uh Norm told you that you might want to read some of Emmett Fox's work. I really am a big advocate of Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount and other things. And you might want to read Emmett Fox's work on stepping out of your comfort zone, especially as it relates to starting your own company. Because at the time, you were considering um, moving on with this $15,000 gig that you had, and you were going to do this company. Can you tell us this story and the significance it had on your life? Because this was a real turning point for you. It seemed in the book like it was a turning point.
2: I think it's a turning point. I've told the story quite a bit, and it resonates with people. It's The heart aroused, and what basically the story was, a little girl was out with her father, and she was thirsty. So she said to her daddy, she's thirsty. So he hooked a hose up to the house. You know, gave her the hose like he would, told her to hold it. He went and turned on the water and she was drinking water out of the hose. And then just in a little bit later, she said, There's no more water. And he looked at her and realized that she had moved her foot off over the hose. So she was blocking the water. So he said to his daughter, Take your foot off the hose. And what I got out of that is many times we have our foot on the hose. And the way the story goes is there's times in our life when our heart gets aroused. But our heart's moving before our brain. And sometimes while our heart's moving, our brain is coming up with, well, wait a minute. Like for me, I left a CEO job with really good job security, really good income, great retirement plan. for And I had a $15,000 engagement when I walked out. Now, right. if you were thinking about this, why would you do that? And what he says is in the chapter that many times we don't follow our heart because it might not make sense at the time, but if we follow our heart, normally the right things happen. When people ask me for career advice, I give them two things. Find something you're passionate about, and number two, be kind to yourself, because there's going to be times when you go up and down. If you're passionate, you'll keep going, but also be kind to yourself, because you get beat up enough without beating yourself up.
1: You can follow the advice of Mr. Rogers. Be kind to yourself. (laughs) And what a great gentleman he was. Um, Can you speak with us about the four predictable phases every organization goes through when they set out to implement change? Now, uh, many of us help organizations navigate change. During COVID, you had to assist organizations in navigating a lot of change. Um, Let's face it. COVID had to have a huge impact on healthcare workers, on their mental health, on administrations, on their financial health. Uh, how would you best uh, have them go through these phases? And what would you tell?
2: Them? I think there's there's pre-COVID type changes or past COVID when we get through it. And you know, the normal phases of change is a like honeymoon phase, we they, this gets hard, and you gotta break through a barrier. I call it the turbulence wall. I think with the pandemic, it changed a lot of things. And I think the challenge with the pandemic, because people didn't know how long it's going to be. I was talking to a hospital today in um, Texas, and all of a sudden, this is bad again. And people say, I don't know if I can make it. Well, they will because they have no choice. So I think I think the phases we're going through now is is more like stress and trauma. And if you look at stress, it's short term. We go back to normal, Um, but there's anxiety. But if it stayed for a long time, it can wear us out. Mm -hmm. I think um, we're moved into trauma in some organizations and the difference between trauma and stress is trauma can be one situation, but it can also, we're not going to go back to normal. There's heavy productivity issues, different roles, different jobs, lack of trust. People feel hopeless and helpless. So, you know, you know, Mark Golston and, you know, Diana Handel, and they wrote the book, Why Hope When You Can Heal. Um, I've created a toolkit that people get for free on how to measure where your organization's at. So in stress or trauma. Then um, I use the Fallen Fighter Fighters Foundation um, of getting letting people self-assess themselves where they're at. Then we have Ballman and Dahl's done some great work on how to treat the organization for trauma. And then we also created a toolkit that I give out free. It basically walks you through everything. And so I I think right now, you know, the different phases and the the phase are in right right now for most of
1: us. Can they get the toolkit, Quince, pardon me for interrupting, because is the toolkit available at your website?
2: Yeah, yeah, all free we okay. also have a, an ebook too for free. So everything we're doing is by not for profit student Institute wants to just make healthcare healthcare better. So I think there's this turbulence phase and you know the, the and that's where you got to keep going. Sometimes you just got to keep the throttle down. But I think people have to be um, encouraged to be in a safe environment, take care of themselves. So our phases of change have really been thrown out the window during the, the pandemic. Because it's, it's just a whole different ballgame that most healthcare people, you know, you can always say, oh, we've been through this before. I don't think so. Not in something this long, this unpredictable. Um, it's just, it's all new turf. So I'm learning from CEOs around the country. Um, and many of them are, are, really truly becoming more empathetic leaders you know i used to say that great leaders have no excuses but i think that the number one skill set a leader needs today is how to show empathy but then get people not in so much empathy that they don't move forward and i think you've got to keep people moving forward which brings it back to our replenishing the calling the gratitude you know and greg when we announced the gratitude symposium I was hoping for 1,000 people, and we had 61,000 people sign up. So there's a real hunger. And I don't mean gratitude, just glad-handing gratitude. There's a real hunger. And that's why I then go to Gratitude Group. Not only hear me I'm talk about Gratitude Symposium, but hear a lot of other speakers on how to make sure you take responsibility for filling up your own emotional bank account.
1: Well, you know, with people that work in healthcare it's a sense of selflessness, um, they're not selfish, and I think the reality is is that um, combining that with everything else that they have to deal with in life, uh, raising a family, uh, financial things, it's a challenge. We all face it, but people in healthcare, I think, are facing it at a little bit greater degree of intensity, uh, simply because we saw all the hospitals overloaded with patients and challenging. And you say, avoiding pain and uncomfortable situations is just part of being human. That's what you wrote. As you mentioned in the book, we're taught this from a very young child's age. When is facing pain an unavoidable situation to achieve the desired outcome within an organization? And how do you advise going about facing hard conversations? Hard conversations.
2: I think I think one of the things in our toolkit, we create a tool to sit down with the employee and have them walk through a, a, sort of an assessment of where they're at. And I will find those start helping you with with the hard conversations. It's also having that empathy. And I tell people in healthcare, for example, my daughter-in-law is a nurse. Not only was she in the COVID union working twelve hours a day for six, five, six days every week, but her children weren't in school and her husband had a job who he had to be at work so now she's not only managing her nursing but she's also trying to manage with her husband children that are in virtual school so i think it's been really uncharted waters for many people in healthcare and and that's why great healthcare systems have really loaded up on resources you know helping people find caregivers i love the fact that a hospital i was talking to out east took their gift shop, which really isn't doing much anymore with the limited visitors and turned it into a food pantry that they had ready to go meals for all their employees so they can take them home at night. It's doing those types of things to say, what can I do to make this better for you? Whether it's caregivers, whether it's laundry, whether it's transportation, whether it's food, you know, how do we again show that we're here in this with you? Because we know it's hard. We know it's painful. But we want to do the best job. We can also, again, I think you're finally seeing the stigma of mental health. You know, the one or two or three biggest prescribed drugs for people working in health care antidepressants. Now, nothing wrong with antidepressants, but I think it'd be nice if they went with a lot of other things. The least used um, benefit in health care is the EAP. Even though people provide a lot of resources, there's that stigma. So we just did a survey of a medical school, Greg, right? um, a large medical school very well-known, 50% of their doctors said they're not eating like they should, they're not exercising like they should, and they're not sleeping like they should. 8 to 10% said they were over-medicating on things. Yeah. then when we said, how likely are you to get help? They said, absolutely not. And part of it is the label. Part of it is they don't trust, unfortunately, with the idea, and hopefully with what's happening with the Olympics, that'll change. Hopefully, you know, my good friend Bubba Watson came out a while back about mental health. Those types of things will change, but we've got to reduce the stigma um, because they're still afraid of their insurance company and so on. Um, pe- physicians of color particularly came out and said, we already feel we're labeled. If we, people know we're getting mental health treatment, we'll even be labeled more. So I think it's people. that's why people say, Quint, why are you so open about your alcoholism? Cause I'm hoping to help other people. I'm, I'm hoping yeah. that I'm hoping that, and I, I will, it's not unusual for people to reach out to me because themselves or a friend or a relative um, because I'm, I'm so open. And I think when you share your vulnerability, you know, you know, God comes through the cracks and that's really what we're talking about here is when you share it, it's incredible, you know, cause of my background and special ed and my own hearing and speech impediment, it's not unusual for a parent to come up to me and talk about their child. So I think once we open up the doors to our own soul, we can help other people open up their doors to their own souls.
1: Totally well said. I, I think that uh, what you said is so important. I think empathy, being the lead a leader, finding more empathy, but people being able to still uh, pursue on and to do the right actions that they need um, is so important. and. Um, if you were to leave the listeners with three ideas or actionable takeaways, now we are going to give the listeners a link to your toolkit so that they can go access these tools you talked about um, because that's part of what you've developed. Um, but if there were three takeaways from the calling, what would they be and how might they be able to put them to work in their lives and at work? immediately.
2: Well, here's some ones at work. I work with people that are suicidal, and I have them do this, and it's amazing what it does, and I've done it in healthcare. Every day, write down three things you're grateful for. You know, in my book, to begin, I say a heart full of gratitude has little room for anything else, and I guarantee it works. You just write down three things you're grateful for. I have two guys that write to me every single day that two years ago were almost suicidal, and if you wrote what they write today... It's just incredible. I'm playing a game with my son, something like that. Number two, bring this into the workplace. We have a lot of fun with this. You know, take your department and everybody writes their name on a piece of paper. And then you pass that along to all the other employees. And the other employees, like I would read Greg, and I'd write down something I'm grateful about Greg because he's my coworker. Now, if I don't want to write something down, I leave it blank. But I have seen people take these papers because they don't have time to read all these nice messages from their coworkers, literally cry in the workplace. And I guarantee you they will post it somewhere around their computer. They will keep it with them. So that's another quick tool that tends to work. The other thing we've always found work is is that drop a thank you note, drop a thank you note, handwritten thank you note if you can to somebody that's making an impact in your life and watch what happens. I'm going to give you a fourth one, Greg, that I think leaders have to really do. It's make sure you're constantly connecting back to the workforce and the difference they are making in people's lives. Because that is really vital. Because sometimes we're so busy doing it, we miss it. We even do that at the my big second double-A baseball team. The Blue Wahoo is an example. We got a note from a woman that said her daughter, Rachel was a Down syndrome girl who passed away. And she said, she's now with the Angels. She said, I went to the Pensacola Blue Wahoo game and I immediately noticed you had three workers in wheelchairs immediately as I got up on the concourse. That makes a difference to me. Then I got down to section 115 where I was sitting and the usher is an adult with Down syndrome. She said, then I look at the national anthem you have somebody with Down syndrome singing the national anthem. She said, I just want to tell you, thank you for doing that. And we sent that to every single employee. And and what I'm saying is our job as a leader is to constantly keep that purpose and why we're doing what we're doing in front front of the people that do the job.
1: It's so important. And, you know, you uh, touched on a really special part. I used to tell people I used to work in an organization at Oceanside called Terry, T-E-R-I. We had 600 autistic and Down syndrome kids. And I was the fundraiser. We were building a new organization. But I never got greeted by a Down syndrome child who was ever having a bad day. It brightened my day every time I walked in to actually work in the office, Uh, They would bring them by and they'd come in and they'd give me a hug. And it was just it was wonderful because it created such a great atmosphere. And I tell you, when you're going to raise money and you have Down syndrome kids hugging you, it makes it a lot easier to do. So I just want to say that that was a special uh, two year step for me um, to do that.
2: Well, when I round up, when I do, Greg, sorry to interrupt, but one of the things I do every day in every workplace is I say, thank you for coming to work today. Thank you for coming to work today. Thank you for coming to work today. And do you know, real quickly, they're going to start saying, thank you for letting me, thank you for having me, I'm glad I'm here. It's up to us to create that feeling. And so that's the rules I have. You can't walk by a, a customer without saying, greeting them. But every time you see an employee, you thank them for being at the workplace today. And it makes a difference.
1: Well, I want to thank you, Quint, for being on Inside Personal Growth, uh, sharing your message about the calling. Uh, This is your new book. Uh, For all my listeners, we're going to put a link to the website. You'll be able to go get the book there. You'll also, he mentioned the toolkit. Uh, There's a toolkit there. Tools and techniques can be utilized. Um, you can download that as well. Uh, Quint, good luck to you today uh, with your opening of the stadium there. And I hope that it all goes well for you. And thanks so much for all you're doing to help all the people that are helping us uh, when we're not feeling so well.
2: Well, I think Norm told me, I'd always try to thank Norm. I'd say, Norm, thank you so much for your help. And he'd say, Quint, The one thing you and I will never agree on is who should be thanking who. So, Greg, thank you.
1: You're quite welcome.